25 years, physicians diagnosed my periodic episodes of fainting, falling, disorientation as cardiac. Eventually, in my 50s, I learned I had multiple sclerosis, not cardiac disease. Repeated misdiagnosis. Multiple sclerosis is not a rare disease. I come only this close to appreciating the trials and tribulations of experiencing an undiagnosed illness. Something is wrong. I know it. I feel it. Why can't you name it and treat it? February 28th is Rare Disease Day. 20 to 30 million people have rare diseases and struggle to name their constellation of conditions and find treatment. I reached out to my colleague, Doug Lindsay, who I met through PCORI, the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute's Rare Disease Advisory Panel. Let's jump right into our conversation. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Leeuwen, a two-legged cisgender old white man of privilege who knows a little about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. We will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of health care. Let's make some sense of all of this. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm excited that you're here. I don't think I really only met you not that long ago. And we were on a call together, I think, the PCORI Rare Disease Advisory Panel. Mm-hmm. And um, you pushed all sorts of buttons for me, <laughs> good buttons. And I reached out and hence this call. So I wanted to start as a way of introducing yourself to talk a little bit about what was going on in your life when you realized that health was fragile. Yeah, I learned that from my mom. So I guess from about 18 months on, it was very challenging for her to pick me up. So she did pick me up when I was five and choking on a jawbreaker and, and saved my life. But that was generally the level like of, of situation it would have to be for her to risk doing something like that. So my mom just had a lot of health problems and we had no answers. And she was a make do person. She didn't really see herself as sick as she was. Even as the years progressed, fourth grade was the last year she could go to a parent teacher conference because the fifth grade, I was on the second floor of the school. Oh, so that's not usually what you expect of a woman of 38 is to be able is to have or, or, or something roughly whenever, you know, someone in their 30s is to have to forego a meeting with teachers if there's 12 stairs, that kind of thing. So my mom was just very sick for my whole life and increasingly. And then also my aunt as well. So I would go every day during the summers, I would go to play basketball or something, but I would swing by my aunts to tie her shoes because she needed the shoes tied well and tightly, but she also wasn't in a position to even tie them herself. Okay. It, it seemed very much like part of life, but it was in the sense that it could be something that was just part of the tapestry of your day, but it was also something that was part of life. It wasn't like like I, everything was going fine. And then there was one day you realized the fragility. 
Right. Do you, so let's do a more traditional introduction and tell me a little bit about what you do professionally and something that you do for fun. Yeah. So I, <laughs> so even what I do, so much of my life is wrapped up in the health sagas and, and odysseys that I've been a part of that those answers make sense more when you understand my story. But right now I am a personal medical consultant. I am somebody folks with, with some means are able to hire. And I basically join their family for a year and see if we can get someone with a rare or complex condition unstuck. If they're stuck in the medical system, we try, I try and figure out how and work with them to get them unstuck, get them a diagnosis or get them a care team that's working or get them uh, a treatment. And that's a challenge because when you're neither the patient nor the doctor, all you can, you're almost like the zookeeper that brings the pandas together and goes, oh boy, I hope something good happens because you don't have in, an intrinsic authority anymore, either the, the moral authority of that of the patient or the authority of the physician. So that's what I do professionally. And I like to drive. I, I like hitting a back road and that kind of thing. And I've been looking at, at getting back into fly fishing, which was one of the things I loved before I got sick at 21. I actually worked in a fly shop and spent my high school years in a, a fly fishing club with the folks who were decades and decades older than me. Oh, wow. wow. The thing that um, inspired me about you was in the, the conversation in the uh, Rare Disease Advisory Panel at PCORI. Yes. You were talking about rare disease as a disparity mm -hmm. as an equity challenge. Yes. And could you talk more about that? Yeah. So this is the PCORI is the Patient Centered Outcomes Research Institute. And when they were set up, they had a congressionally mandated list of things they needed to do. And one was a rare disease advisory panel. And if there's going to be a panel, then somebody's got to be in charge of it. And so it's me and another fellow named Matt. And we have about 15, 20 panelists from every walk of life, from industry and, and things. And I represent patients, and there are some others that do as well. And so we were in this meeting, and we were talking about the future of PCORI. So an amazing organization set up 10 years ago, and to put motive, to put money and, and push behind an agenda aimed at getting information that helps patients decide what to do at the bedside, patients and doctors, is a sort of a great mission, but fitting rare disease in has been a challenge. So it may be far easier to run a study with 5,000 or 15,000 heart patients comparing one treatment to another than to find a rare disease study because 19 out of 20 rare conditions don't have a recognized treatment. So if most of your research is comparative effectiveness research, comparing treatment A to treatment B, and you have a population that has no identified treatment, you've got to bind. But that bind extends so much further. So even though I lived the rare disease life because of my family, I was not aware that there were 25 to 30 million American rare disease sufferers. And then it was easy to find that the average time to diagnosis is seven years. For me, if you don't count me diagnosing it, it would be six years. But for my mom, 
1984 on a page in her records, all of the information was there. And it took another 22 years for her to get a diagnosis. That's a long time. I started to look at the stats on rare disease. And because of the roles that I occupy in these organizations, and because of the continuing conversations we're having about health disparities and social determinants of health and such, it just seemed to me that this was the time for this conversation. And that is that there is a group called rare disease sufferers. We don't necessarily even see ourselves as a group because that's the premise is that you are the small group, the tiny population with this rare problem, but when united and it's a large population. So when you look at the health outcomes of that population, they're really awful. Seven years to get diagnosed, 95% have no approved treatment. Just the stats go on and on from there. And the rate of new treatments, it would make it take another 2,000 years for each of these 7,000 identified rare diseases to get a treatment. But there are some that that aren't identified. So when I saw all this, I thought this was essential at a place like PCORI, at a place that puts patient outcomes at the center of what we focus on. Rare disease needs to be considered an equity group because there's initiatives all over the world and all over this country aimed at remedying health disparities. And if rare disease isn't seen as one, all of those efforts won't even be trying to help us. So the thing that's interesting to me about mm-hmm. and thinking about this and thinking about as a PCORI board member yeah. of implementing is that if the focus is on treatments for an individual diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So meaning that there's, I'm making this up, but sure. that there's a thousand people in the country with this diagnosis. Yeah. As opposed to thinking about this cohort of people that have rare diseases that are difficult to diagnose. And so that it's the, as you were saying, that it is a large group Mm-hmm. And and one of the things that's common is the difficulty to diagnose. Yes. And thinking about what's, what kind of research can be done to, I, 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 I picture an algorithm systematically. Okay, we don't know what this is. Okay, let's, here are steps to take to yes. narrow whether it's narrow, that it's it's neurologic, it's cardiac, is that an appropriate way to go? Or is there a different way to, to, to structure yeah. an algorithm so that you could cut the time in half from seven years to three years, you know, so, three and a half years? Like, so I can cut the time in half right now, and I'll explain right? how. Yeah, so, please. When doctors are trained, so doctors, again, medical school, you're reading about everything and you have interns disease where every disease you're reading about, you now have, because if you have a belly ache and you've been reading about all of the things that can go wrong, you, that's, you said, when did you become aware health is fragile? That's when doctors are becoming aware how fragile that this thing that's working could fail in innumerable ways. Yes. We are like a helicopter. We're, we are, our body is conspiring to fall apart at all moments. Like that's how they see it all of a sudden. So doctors all of a sudden get, get taken to the woodshed and told, no, he doesn't have this thing on the back page of the back textbook that you learned about. When you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. Common problems show up commonly. Rare problems show up rarely. But 
in the heuristic of busyness, Mm -hmm. common problems show up commonly, that part gets remembered. Rare problems show up rarely, that part gets thrown aside such that rare means never. So if I wanted to cut the diagnostic time for rare disease patients and their odyssey, I would simply remind people that there are zebras. They didn't say, think, they don't think unicorns. You don't think Esquilax or some strange, some creature that we've never heard of. I took that from the Simpsons, by the way. But you would basically try and understand that once doctors need an alarm bell, that when a patient has been seen by a suite of folks and no one has an answer, you need to say, maybe it's a zebra and not a horse or not just a horse that's, that's gone mad. So that's why this sort of health equity issue becomes important in this social determinants of health, in this pathway to solving things, just simply opening the minds of the medical establishment to reestablish that after the smart neurologist and the second smart neurologist have struck out, send the alarm bells up and go, maybe this one's a zebra. Because I always had to start with these crazy situations where doctors would concede I had the rarest condition in the world and then assume everything else was perfectly normal. So I always started at this broad pyramid of, oh, that's rare. That doesn't happen very often. You would need to be. And you're like, I'm already a zebra. Why should you be surprised that I have rare aspects to my rare condition? So that's where this starts is even beyond a complex algorithm and stuff, just simply throwing up a flag that says this one might be a rare disease patient that we're, and that's why we're struggling. Now we can try to adjust to that because I don't think that ever gets done. You end up with the doctor after the fact, seeing blah, 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 hydrogenase, blah, 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 some long genetic name, but there you need somebody to throw up the flag that says this might be a rare disease patient. And that's why we're struggling to fit it into common boxes. And are that would shorten pa- people's oh, tra- travel by length, by years. Yes. Are there clinics that specialize in, we don't have a diagnosis yet, and we're really good at looking at rare? Yeah. So the NIH has an undiagnosed disease program. And it's new. Like when I was undiagnosed and sitting at home, there wasn't one. But, and they get a diagnosis apparently 30% of the time. And while somebody, and that's like baseball, if you hit 300, you're a star. That is, that's what success looks like today. That's those people are the ones taking challenging cases. Yeah, they're taking challenging cases and succeeding. And anyone who's been wandering in the desert with no diagnosis for years would gladly take a 30% chance at finding one. And that's where you start to see what a health disparity looks like is you say, you know, if your foot hurts and, and you said, you're going to go to the doctor and there's a 70% chance they tell you, we don't know for the next two years, you would not find that except. Okay. So what we've been thinking about is some of the commonalities mm-hmm. across rare diseases. Yes. And then there's obviously the differences across rare diseases. So are there like categories of differences that are not necessarily it's this chromosome or that chromosome or rather 
it's yeah can you help me out there a little bit yeah yeah so you might find that there's a basket of neuroinflammatory conditions that it's they're hard to tell apart and you might find that there are degenerative conditions or rare cancers or so there are buckets within rare disease and one of the keys to moving forward would be to find opportunities to pool patient groups. The challenge is, as, is that comparative effectiveness research does not mean treatment A tried on populations B and C to see which one right. responds better. It's, the, it's two treatments, one population. And so even though we're comparing the effectiveness, it's not like it technically. So right. the, there's a need to look for studies that bundle some of these rare conditions together to help differentiate or establish sameness. Because at least letting someone know what area of medicine their their care should come from or their diagnostic journey should primarily involve, like that's progress. My mom had been sick 30 years and, and you couldn't say for certain what branch of medicine was supposed to be the one figuring out what was wrong with her. If you have something with that level of clarity and a level of murkiness and doctors as busy as they are, there is a chance for no one to take ownership. So it's interesting, this comparative effectiveness business. I see it elsewhere Mm -hmm. that comparative effectiveness says that A is more likely than B in this setting, in these Mm -hmm. circumstances, to be more effective and they both need some evidence behind them to compare. Yeah. And if we're getting into areas that aren't traditionally compa- that comparative research or that any research has been done on. So even if this is incarcerated people mm-hmm. or yeah. people without homes, goodness, oh, pregnant women of color. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which, which which is certainly not a rare thing. Yeah. Uh, where there's much less evidence, so there's less to compare, seems like a challenge of methodology. Yes. Uh, in our comparative effectiveness research world. How do you deal with that? In the, how does that come up in the the rare disease advisory panel? I've attended two. And I'm I'll not tell sure you, I've yeah. heard that. So I'll tell you where it came up. I was working, I I got to advise active one, one of the active trials. So these were the accelerating COVID like vaccines and therapeutics and stuff. So this was the NIH umbrella for COVID research. And there were six or so of of active studies. And I was advising the one on immunomodulators. And then I ended up on... Okay. We were looking at a study designed to see which medicines could prevent an immune system overreaction in hospitalized COVID patients. The cover-up's worse than the crime kind of thing, or you overcorrect into the skid. Sometimes people beat the virus, but they turned up their body so much that their immune system takes them down and that too. that gets to long COVID. And- and well, that gets to the poor outcomes. The okay. long COVID is just a bubbling, you know, a bubbling pot on the stove that never seemed to settle down. Okay. This is the one where you can die where okay. from the autumn, from the immune overreaction. Okay. But people talk about a sufficiently powered study. Yes. So what that means is this sort of in layman's terms, coming from a layman who's never gotten to run a study is there's a premise that there's a size required to create 
uh, a quality of data, you know, that, that 10 people are, is anecdotal and 10,000 people is a study. And yet what we ran into sometimes is that in, in my condition, when we were looking at surgery, I was able to track down 32 cases worldwide ever. Mm-hmm that was still the best evidence we had and had to draw from. Mm -hmm. So part of what happens is that best practice in other parts of medicine require studies to be large enough, well-populated enough and standardized enough that you get strong, defensible statistical conclusions. But if you're dealing with a population that's a statistical anomaly, you may have to revisit that idea because if we wait, to find 5,000 of something of which there's only a hundred of, we have certainly not helped. But here's the thing about knowledge, right? When DARPA thought of the internet, they certainly didn't think of TikTok and cat memes and, mm-hmm. you know, knowledge added to the collective canon of what we understand has other benefits, other ripples. Because what you do is you borrow models, you learn from things. So when bioinformatics, this field of of studying biology was forming, they brought people in from electrical engineering and cell biology, and they were all using the models from their field to see if they applied to this new area. And so even if you do rare disease studies, one, you may have learned how to study other small populations. In a, in a way that's successful or in a way that failed, which can also teach. But two, you learn things. There's a disease called Castleman's disease, and it's not widespread. And our friend David Fagenbaum, the physician at Penn, who found his own cure and wrote the book Chasing, guess what? One, he repurposed a drug. And two, his condition involves an immune overreaction that can kill you. And so David Fagenbaum's work has been very helpful in the COVID world. Because it involved that same kind of immune overreaction that study I was, you know, helping to advise was looking into. So that even though studying that rare disease and and for example, SARS and, and MERS, those populations were small enough that you could call that a rare disease. They didn't spread and it could have spread. But the 10 or 15 years we spent studying it helped enable us to fight the pandemic today. So these small populations that lead to answers those answers don't have to die there. And they so spark things elsewhere. Answers, you're, in a way, you're also saying the methods. Yes. Yes, that the process of figuring out how to study a tiny population right. applies to another tiny population. Yeah. And and the process of learning how to, to work with small numbers in data in a reliable way is just as valuable as Optum crunching people, the data sets the size of Portugal. Now a word about our sponsor, Abridge. Use Abridge to record your doctor visit. Push the big pink button and record the conversation. Read the transcript or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at abridge.com. A-B-R-I-D-G-E dot com. Or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Record your healthcare conversations. Let me know how it went. Our guest is Doug Lindsay. 
a personal medical consultant and co-chair of PCORI's Rare Disease Advisory Panel. So if you wanted to leave us, meaning the listeners and readers, with a couple of key points that it's important for them to understand or advocate for, yeah. What would those Let me pull back one second. Are we your your listeners are folks who are already in healthcare, right? And they're like what? we want to calibrate because I'm just yes, talking about yes, optimum. Yes, if you yes. don't know what So yes, I would say that I'm health hats. And yes. I'm health hats because I'm a patient, I'm a caregiver, I'm a clinician, I'm a quality management person, informatics I'm a boss. My constituency reflects that variety. But what yeah. they have in common, I think, is they care about best health. And how do you learn to get to best health? Yeah. Whatever hat you're wearing. Does you, that make yes. sense? Yes. Okay. So... If we wanted to lay out a couple th- couple takeaways, yes. The first is that rare doesn't mean never. <laughs> you know, hey, that, that's a good one. I like that. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The next one is that, and this is really important across all of science and medicine. A question is not the same as shooting something down. If I say, "Let's run a study that does X, Y, and Z," and you say, "How would that work?" Sometimes people can leave with a tear in their eye and go, "Boy, he shot me down." No, it is. It, it, Questions should be a conversation. And so if you are using questions to dismiss or shut down conversations, then you need to change how you're asking them so that people understand it's an invitation, or you need to change how you're using them. Because people go, oh, how would that work? One way I've gotten success over the years is always taking questions as if they were earnest. When somebody goes, how would that work? They may get a phone call in nine months in which I explain in great detail how that might work. But that's important, too. So as decision makers, as leaders, use questions as a true invitation to hear from a community or from people or about new ideas, not as a way to shut down conversations. Because remember, people don't always have the best answer on the spot. So if your boss asks you a question you don't have an answer for and he he or she doesn't do it in a supportive way, You can say, I'm going to bring that up again. So that's how we're going to change our tone of voice to invite conversations when questions remain. And questions remain in all aspects of rare disease. So that's how that fits in. I would say that what's special about my suggestion of making rare disease a health disparity group is that health equity is a relatively new take on a topic of equity. And so this would be a population rising from the health equity, from the health sphere, instead of being brought from society in to the health sphere, like race or gender or something else where, or class, where you're bringing a well-recognized concern and applying it to healthcare. This would be going from healthcare up. But because this population are patients, Mm -hmm. it's essential that happened because the challenge is that a healthy person in another equity group faces 
suffer in that equity group, you can solve a problem for one without budging the other an inch. So those are the first you know, thoughts that come to mind. And the other is just to remember, 25 to 30 million Americans have a rare disease. That's really big. That's more than the state of New York. And so when you're thinking about what to do for the rare disease community, you're not taking a diversion to make a, a one-off concession for some person who's landed on your doorstep. You are taking efforts to help a problem that reaches 10% of the population. Wow. Thank you. Yes. So is, want to leave us with anything? Yeah. Okay. Rare disease day is coming up. Okay. When's that? That's February 28th. Okay. I'm working on an opinion piece that sort of explains a little bit about the rare disease population to the nation at large and makes this case for a health disparity group. And what's important is this doesn't take away from anybody else. This adds rare disease to the list of disparities that big organizations are already working on. And I think the people working to solve and remedy health disparities would be the kind of people deeply motivated at bending the branch to to have a system work better for somebody who has a rare disease. So I think that this is going to be pushing on an open door, but the task is figuring out how to get somebody to pay attention to this opinion piece. If I had to become the chairman of this, the co-chair of this org of this board to, to truly soak in these stats, there are plenty of health literate people, but there's plenty of just savvy folks for whom this is all new. And they'd have to pay attention to my piece to decide whether it's worth placing. So that's what I'm looking for is I've got a piece to place for Rare Disease Day at the end of February. And if anybody out there wants to help think of uh, how to get some opinion page editor to to give it the time of day. And I don't say that as an insult. Like it's just the journalists are bummed with people who are hoping to share a message. My message comes from 25 million people that nobody's ever heard of and that don't recognize they're a community. So I think there's a real benefit in putting at least a tiny megaphone for one day on this article and then letting the rare disease community share it amongst themselves. I will try to put this around the 28th. The It wouldn't have been my usual cue because I have a few other pieces, but it seems like it would be fitting to publish this right around then. So I will. And if you, I have the article, didn't you just recently had something published? So I submitted it as comment for research agenda. And oh. so I would need to rework it a little bit to add, to make the focus rare disease day and then explain all that follows. I can do that pretty quickly. Yeah. I did want to add one more thing. Oh, go please. So when my mom was sick all those years, so she was a math and chemistry double major who worked at WashU Med School in the biochemistry department before getting sick. Okay. And the best she could do would be to have us rip out tiny articles from the newspaper, the Dr. Donahue column, things like that, because she was starved for information. She was homebound and it was pre-internet. And One of the things she ripped out that sat on a copper tin on our hutch for years and years was Nord. 
you know, the National Organization of Rare Diseases and uh, Rare Disorders. So nor if you are struggling to figure out what's going on with, with your health or if you have a rare disease, a great place to start is NORD and a great place to support. These are people who've been around for decades trying to facilitate communication within the rare disease community. And I'm happy to work with and for PCORI, but I am also very happy to spotlight NORD. They gave me our first clues. When I got a computer with internet access, that's where I went. Mm -hmm. And that's where I found the first nonprofit devoted to the kinds of problems like I had. And so I I just think they're wonderful. And they certainly are a good resource for lots of people. Thank you. Thanks. This has been great. I appreciate your time. Yes, it's been great. We'll um, meet again. I may have to interview you you one day because I did all the talking. (laughs) Let me know. I'm I'm at your service. Thank you so much, Danny. Take care. Mm -hmm. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Doug, for summarizing. I especially like rare doesn't mean never. Doug's public comment about rare disease as an equity community was heard by Picori. Good news for me, podcasting, mainly the interviews, introduces me to many new ideas and fresh personal stories. Editing the audio and transcript imprints the gems for me, counterbalancing my usual Swiss cheese brain, forgetting as soon as the interview ends. My gratitude percolates through my brain, feeding my drive to continue to connect the dots, network, and advocate onward. See the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, www.health-hats.com. Please subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. Thanks. See you around the block.